Welcome to Taiwan War episode 31 on Fearless Fighters and Dynasty. Kung Fu makes a splash in America via Bruce Lee, via King Boxer, aka Five Fingers of Death, but a Taiwanese wuxia from 1971 unexpectedly dazzled American audiences as well in 1973, on with an array of deadly Kung Fu killers and a promotional campaign for the ages. In 1973, Fearless Killers came to America. We'll discuss and review it um, shortly. Also, Kung Fu Cinema in the Third Dimension, 3D, in the form of 1977's Dynasty, will be reviewed in the second half. So we'll get to that. My name is Kenny B. And while multi-talented in a way that would outdo said Kung Fu Killers, the multimedia man Todd Statman was not chosen to be part of the Kung Fu Killer gang. So he's here instead. I'm still stinging from that a little bit, but, you know, it's not going to interfere with my ability to talk about the film, so don't worry about that. Exactly. You uh, you got the verbal skill, and they were, and, I do. And, and, and they, and they were looking for, uh, looking for uh, physical skills of sorts, I suppose. I have the uh, Golden Dragon five-syllable skills. <laughs> well, well, there it is. Uh, you've outdone them already. All right, exactly. There you go. <laughs> uh, so um, this was uh, something we were both familiar with, and uh, so uh, this was a revisit uh, for uh, both of us. But uh, I, I want I wanted to do Fearless Fighters uh, primarily because uh, we were blessed with the fact that the people behind the release of it, of the American release of it, uh, ca- came forward again when it came out on DVD. So we, we got a little background from them that we are going to summarize here on what it took to bring it to America. And I always love those kind of stories because uh, when it breaks through, it's the product of uh, people that um, know marketing pretty well and uh, hit hit upon a trend that... uh, that will stay and evolve in in America, you know. So they they were kind of the first, I think. Uh, these uh, little uh, this little indie outfit. Can I have one question? In your intro, you referred to it as fearless killers. I've never heard it referred to by that. Well, name. well, well, it would be fearless fighters. Uh, I, I I literally said it uh, incorrectly. So uh, you're right. Oh, okay. All right. I'm sorry to expose you, but uh... or maybe I uh, maybe I was testing your uh, your skill as a kung fu killer to see yes. if you can spot. Typing errors. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I knew it was released under a lot of different titles. Wasn't it originally made as like a real man or something like that? Or? That's the original English title that uh, originated in uh, in Taiwan. A real man. So uh, that's, uh, that's a sort of anti-Wuxia title. It's, yeah. uh, it doesn't sound like uh, the genre at all, but uh, we'll uh, we'll get into it. Of course, some very brief contact information, first of all. And this is Taiwan Noir on the podcast on Fire Network. And for access to the shows and the back, uh, the show and the back catalog of Taiwan Noir, go to podcastonfire.com. We are also available, of course, on Apple Podcasts, uh, on Stitcher Radio and Spotify. So check out our back catalog that way. If you have any questions or feedback, if you've seen, for instance, Fearless uh, Fighters, uh, let us know. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com. And join us over on our various socials, such as Facebook and Twitter. And there are handy buttons and links uh, on the very website, podcastonfire.com. And I write about a variety of uh, Taiwanese movies over on sogoodreviews.com. I post little basic video reviews on sleazykvideo.com. And my tweets are available at sogoodreviews. So uh, that's my plug and out of the way. What plugs do you want to rattle off, Todd? Because you, 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 you have a Bible. A Bible, yeah. A plugs. Well, yeah, I wrote the Bible. 
Uh, you may have heard of that. The Book of Todd. Uh, <laughs> no, there's not that much. You know, most for the last few months, I've really been focused on doing this rock and roll show that I finally did last Saturday. So with that behind me, I'm beginning to be able to look at other things. Two major things behind me. I finally finished my trilogy of novels, the SF Punk Trio. So they're all out there for you to buy, and they're available on ebook too. You know, I've still got my blog, Die Danger, Die Die Kill. Um, I'm going to be doing some writing for uh, Keith Allison's site, Diabolique. I'm also, and I also had a, there is a new uh, Bollywood site out. Who's, God, I'm so unprepared today. I'm sorry. I don't have the name in front of me. It's really good. I contributed a long article on the stunt film star, Dara Singh. And I'm going to be doing sometime in the future an article on Indian Tarzan movies for them. What What is there to dislike about an angle like that? Indian Tarzan movies, like you, you've got readership already. You know what I mean? There's a reason Tarzan is such a widely used character throughout world cinema. I mean, in that he's a very he can be, depending on how he's treated, a very likable character because there's. You know, there's Tarzan movies from Italy, there's Tarzan movies from India, there's Tarzan movies from Thailand. You know, he's one of the, he's like James Bond. He's one of those very uh, portable characters. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll look up that link and uh, put it in the actual show post so you, you can plug the site and your article. Uh, very cool. And the rest of the plugs uh, will be available in the show post. Uh, so before we get going, uh, I'm going to give you a little rundown of what's to come here. And here in the first half, we'll be talking of Fearless Fighters and how an American company brought it to the market and made a splash commercially. This will then be followed by a review and discussion of the film. Uh, we'll take a break and after that, uh, we'll uh, talk of a little bit about the conception of Dynasty and uh, other 3D martial arts or genre films uh, that were around in the 80s as well and there will be a small bio on its uh, lead actor Dorian Tan as well aka Flashlegs and uh, then we'll end the show with our, with our review of uh, the film and timestamps are available in the show post for you uh, for your pleasure and uh, for easy navigation and such and such and such now from china for the first time the foremost masters of the martial arts assemble together in one spectacular motion picture, Fearless Fighters. So, Fearless Fighters from 1973, and the plot is provided as usual by uh, Todd, because I like when uh, when uh, he gives his angle on uh, these things, rather than a one-two one, punch, like, people fight, and it's awesome. Todd is a bit more eloquent than that. So, Well, there is that. So, so what is it about these fearless fighters are real man business? When a rogue faction of the Eagle Claw clan, I have a cold, so maybe that'll add to this. James Earl Jones. <laughs> <laughs> when a rogue faction of the Eagle Claw clan, led by the evil Topa, played by Wong Jun, seals a shipment of royal gold, righteous Eagle Claw disciple Li Ping, played by Yi Yin, sets out to project, protect the clan's good name by stealing it back and returning it to the authorities. 
Unfortunately, all that he gets for his trouble is to be framed for the original robbery, earning him the enmity of Chen, played by Kong Ming, and Mulan, Chung Ching Ching, to two young siblings whose father, a fighter known as the Lightning Whipper, was killed during the robbery. With Li Ping stowed away in jail, Topa and his gang descend upon Li Ping's homestead in search of the gold, slaughtering almost all of his family members when they offer resistance. Only Li Ping's young son survives, thanks to the last-minute intervention of a mysterious lone swordswoman in white named Lady T, played by Wu Ming Sha. Lady T sets off with the boy to reunite him with his father. In the course of the journey, she encounters Chen and Mulan, whom she sets straight about Li Ping's innocence. Chen then helps Li Ping to escape from jail, after which Chen, Li Ping, and Mulan, aided by Lady T, band together to seek vengeance against Topa. Confronted with such formidable opposition, Topa seeks to augment his gang, by taking an ad out in the martial world version of Craigslist. And the result, as in real life, is that every freakazoid with some kind of zany and impractical weapon within a hundred miles radius shows up at his doorstep. These include a fellow calling himself the one-man army, played by Chan Hung Lit, a pair of twins who weld solar ray shooting mirrors, and a gang of vampire phantoms who wear novelty fangs and blackface. The, the the funny thing is uh, that's a lot, but it's also very coherent. So I just wanted to ask one very uh, uh, sort of off-the-cuff question. Would you be able to summarize in the way that you did for a Choyun movie? Or you give up after a while in terms of su- summar- summarize the plots, twists, and multiple characters like Choyun movies often had? I've reviewed several Choyun movies for Teleport City, which, as you probably know, is very heavy on synopsis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually okay. The synopsis were a lot longer, you know, because, of course, those were like 3,000-word articles. But, yeah, I was able to do it. But this one... Pretty easy. Yeah, it's pretty easy. It's pretty... Um, and I guess, would you say that that is because of the editing that the American distributor did or that that's... I, I think it plays a huge part because I, I think they went on record during the audio commentary, uh, the, Richard Elman and his uh, post-production supervisor, that they streamlined the plot and simplified it and removed extra character relationships that they didn't think uh, were necessary to thrust the plot forward. And there are signs of this movie being very tight. In one case, I'll, I'll get to it during my notes. It's very tight. <laughs> it's yes. uh, it's almost to a point of wait a minute, okay, uh, but w- we'll get to that. Some some background we mentioned the people behind uh, the release of Fearless Fighters, uh, the American people behind it. So, uh, so it really is a quick, efficient, to the point wuxia piece. It has no unnecessary dialogue. Really, uh, it's one of the shorter wuxia movies you'll ever find. It runs. It's only has a running time of eighty two minutes, and uh, there's a good explanation behind that because normally they were 90 minutes uh, it was the gold standard uh, so there is a explanation why all of a sudden a production such as this got polished and streamlined and it was indeed released in taiwan as a real man in 1971 and it was directed and action directed by wu min shung who's also in the movie uh, he's in the beginning of the movie i'll get to that and it was picked up in 1973 by richard elman's independent distribution company Elman Film Enterprises which was a small independent theatrical distribution company and and they tried to look for movies that would fit 
in between the schedules of the studio films on the circuit. So so they got Fearless uh, Fighters, uh, and, and the company was also in that sort of sweet spot. As in 1973, you had the US release of Five Fingers of Death, aka King Boxer, which was essentially American mainstream audience's first introduction to Kung Fu. Bruce Lee's movies actually came out in 1972 and 1973, uh, Fist of Fury and the Big Boss, but they didn't make as much of a splash. It was still King Boxer that was seen as as a first, as a breakthrough commercially. An explanation behind that is the fact that Warner Brothers had King Boxer, so they were able to Mm. push it out a bit more distinctly. The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, they were handled by one smaller company or two smaller uh, companies but uh, but everything changed of course when end of a dragon came out and that had warner brothers back in obviously so um going back to uh richard elman he he was looking uh, he was also looking at you know in the case of a real man not a kung fu picture uh, but one in the genre of uh, wuxia all the supernatural stuff of uh, having having powers throwing powers and the wire work and all of that so all that special effects uh, and uh all those special effects and all the wire work in the in the and the enhanced powers he thought would stand out versus the kung fu pictures he had seen on the circuit. He also wanted a quality English dub by quality voiceover artists in the industry. Uh, he he kind of wanted to avoid sort of local New York accents, you know, from from uh, <laughs> so, to sort of make it a little bit more immersive, I suppose. And uh, and via his um, editor and post production supervisor Dick uh, Brummer. He got uh, veteran Chinese-American actor James Hong and other Asian-American actors to come uh, on board. And uh, you, uh, James Hong, uh, maybe he voices several people, but he definitely voices uh, the Chen Hung lit character who calls himself One Man Army, because that is unmistakably that great voice of James's. So um, James was actually on the project to sort of rehearse the cast as well and uh, and the cast did all uh, they all did multiple roles so uh, they trusted him mm-hmm. to be there to supervise uh, the acting if you will uh, so so they all worked together to put together a new version of a real man they, they were working off a literal translation of the script uh, and uh, they started to sort of look for where can we streamline this how can we simplify this a little bit so so complexity of complexities of character relationships in dialogue in the original movie they alluded to the fact that this was all dealt with in long scenes long verbal exposition of who is connected to who and they really felt the action should be at the forefront of the picture but in the original version it seems like the action was kept out of the picture for too long yeah and and it really shows that they 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 populate this with kung fu and the wuxia stuff all the time but the plot is still exactly as you delivered it yeah. it's, it's completely coherent so, uh, it's a good case for original filmmakers don't always know best uh, a, yeah, go, a good I'd eight ten that. minutes can can be removed and it can be better yeah you know i have a theory of one reason why this film was such a success in the u.s because it was mainly playing to grindhouse audiences and if you've watched any old Grindhouse films, if you're a Something Weird fan or something, you know that a lot of those films are really dull. There's a lot of um, expository dialogue. You know, they'd, they'd uh, pad their budget just by including lots of dialogue. This film does that with action. So imagine, you know, watching Fearless Fighters after, you know, you've just seen an Andy Milligan film Mm -hmm. and then Fearless Fighters comes on. You're going to be blown away, I'm pretty sure. See, the Dragon Razor, 
the soul picker, the lightning whipper, and the one-man army. Take on the fearless fighters. Yeah, everything's moving all the time, and uh, and uh, the talky stuff is not uh, is not boring. No, not at all. Not at all. The characters are colorful and interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen the original, and there's no immediate print available of it. But they they went about restructuring it, making it tighter, approachable, and and in their own words uh, on the audio commentary, we really did write a new film using the translation as a guide. Yeah, another thing about it is there's it's not. There, it's it's there's very clear um, distinction between uh, good and bad. Yes, you know the hero's not an anti-hero; they're the good people. So it's really easy to know who to root for. Um, that you know, it's a fun, it's a popcorn movie. It's it's a blast. And they also went about um, creating the effects track, even though they probably had that at their disposal. Uh, disposal. Yeah. So they did all the foley with the weapons clangs and clothes rustling and all of that. So, and, and they also knew and obviously saw that this was a weapons-based movie uh, and people had extraordinary powers. So uh, they decided that the script and the marketing would play up this fact too. So the, therefore we have in the movie, of course, references to that people calling themselves one man army solar ray of death dragon racer right. and that was put on the poster in full the glorious. soul ripper yeah throughout this podcast you'll hear uh, little snippets from the original trailer because the original trailer is very bombastic fearless it's very bombastic and long mm-hmm. the trailer that's available on youtube is like four minutes long which i think would be long for a grindhouse trailer but uh it definitely gets you psyched up for the film and the film really delivers on what the trailer promises, which is not always the case. Yeah, it's not like it's five minutes of this stuff. It's pretty wall-to-wall what you uh, what you saw in the marketing and the poster and all of that. Right. And, and, and obviously the poster, I think, is... If it's riffing on the original, I don't know, but it seems like a completely original work where they put uh, all the all the fighters and all the power uh, the names of them in the poster. And a big block, big block letter title. Yeah, it's very fighters. exciting. Yeah. The Dragon Razor, the Soul Picker, the Lightning Whipper, and the One Man Army take on the fearless fighters. <laughs> Do you want me to continue with the background, Ken? Yes, let me hand over to Todd to deliver some more background on uh, the release, uh, the sort of release cycle of the movie. Well, at the time, striking 35mm prints was not that expensive, so Richard Elman had about 25 of them released to sub-distributors all over the country for scheduling at local drive-ins. It was supported in the promo campaign in the form of a trailer, newspaper ads, TV spots, radio spots, did most of its business in rural areas and in metropolitan areas with drive-ins. Aiming for that time's rating M for mature, the MPA required a few rounds of cuts to remove bloodshed, but being independent, Elman's company couldn't dictate that much that did receive the higher R rating in the end. Uh, Ultimately, did get wide play anyway, and Elman and Brummer theorized that theaters didn't check that closely who passed through the doors anyway, despite the rating 
unless a movie was rated X and or a porno. The attitude would be fairly relaxed and hence profitable. <laughs> and by October 1973, Fearless Fighters made the top 50 highest grossing films in the country that week, according to Variety, coming in at number four, beating out Enter the Dragon, even. Ran over a year as it traveled from location to location, and it needed that time to make the rounds to, ma- to match demand Played a week or two, or maybe more, depending on the grosses, and then moved on. That was essentially the structure to distribution. It had a VHS release in the early 80s by a small company, but it picked up fandom from that release as well. Then the USDV solved the issue, all issues of availability. You can still get it. It's not that elusive, uh, nor uh, price-jacked, uh, despite being an old DVD. So, so it's from uh, Elman's own print. Uh, I didn't include this, but he said that he had stored his print in his garage, and somehow <laughs> it had survived, because it's in pretty good shape, uh, actually. Um, the you know. print I saw looked nice, yeah. So it, it, he, had, he had his business all packed up in his garage, which, uh, which just spelled out to me, like, this print would be green. You know, but uh, I think the first DVD I owned of this was a Wu Tang Clan one that I bought for a dollar. Oh boy, at, at the pharmacy. You know, it didn't look as good as what we had to watch this time. I'd have to say. I'll, I'll take an aspirin, please, and a Wu Tang DVD, please. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can buy some Oxy Cotton and a copy of Fearless Fighters. Let's uh, get to the movie, uh, even though we've so, sort of spelled out our quick opinions, but we're going to follow structure as, as we always do. So as for my short opinion of uh, Fearless Fighters, uh, in original form, I think it would have worked pretty well, but in its re-edited, dubbed and restructured form, it works extraordinarily well. It's it's early Taiwanese wuxia on a budget, but that doesn't stop the, the makers uh, to have uh, and put forth Saini creative ideas uh, and in this form it's also paced really well the basic plot is coherent and uh, and the action is uh, very consistent and uh, thankfully in that department in terms of action it's varied we don't have a lot of uh, repetition a lot of uh, same samey fights here and so it's a uh, it's so much fun and uh, and a good example of um, what shortening can do to your movie as we said so let's uh, throw over to you for, for uh, what do you want to say in short, uh, first of all, of uh, Fearless Fighters, a little extension of your uh, your love for it, I suppose. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I absolutely love this movie because it is so fast-paced and fun, yet coherent, which you rarely find. It's It's got a good comic book style of narrative and pacing, which I think works well. I think also the surplus of colorful characters just keeps it interesting there's not a boring frame in this movie and i mean yes there are some budgetary shortfalls but you, you you can't not forgive them in the face of all that the film delivers it's good i think it's an example of um a low budget where they still uh, sort of put their uh their smart heads together and uh, executed what they could in a clever way because it's not limp uh, what they put forth here it's kind of a uh, neat and uh, cool and physical uh, yeah. uh, because they we're not doing uh, post-production uh, uh, effects by this point in the 70s a la, a la Sue and what have you so they're relying right. on some uh, some physical manifestation of powers which will uh, which we'll get to 
So going back a little bit to uh, to the voice cast, uh, it's it's not a random selection of voices because they did focus on bringing together a, a suitable amount of voice actors to deliver a consistent sort of oral track. So there's no high pitched voices. There's no there's no British accents. Exactly, I was about to say, there's no uh, Australian accents, there's no yeah. <laughs> American accents. Uh, they're meant to feel like inhabitants in the world, and it, they, they are performing it to suit the material, and the material, and they do that well. And and, and it sounds like uh, no one is having it up either, so uh, I, I really like that they, they seem to treat it like, oh, this is fun, let's uh, perform, perform, perform it well, let's do our jobs, for heaven's sake, yeah, so... Um, so, so the voice track is to be appreciated, and and, uh, and as I said, I didn't hear James Hong in other roles as such. But again, mm-hmm. uh, one man army played by Shen Hung Lit, it, that's de- definitely James. So uh, yeah, and, and and it's kind of fun, fun too. He got a credit on this. I re- I watched Game of Death recently for research, mm-hmm. and James Hong does voice work on that. Did not get credit. Oh. So that's what you can do in the seventies. Just uh, yeah, uh, just be uh, a naughty person like that, I suppose. So um. <laughs> also, the fights in this are really varied. I think that's one of the things that keeps them interesting because of the range of gimmicks that are employed. I mean, one fights with a bunch of you know vampires and blackface, and one fight is the um, uh, the two main villains. And Topa has those. Is that the uh, soul picker he has on his hands? They look kind of like cardboard. Yeah, I suppose they, uh, I suppose they were the soul picker. I, I didn't question it, Todd. If you say it's the soul picker, I'll I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I will go to my grave swearing that that was the soul picker. You know, it's evident in the beginning as it sort of starts to demonstrate what powers these characters have. And I'm sure the leaping and the catching of the leaves on the sword in the beginning would be exciting to both Asian and US audiences. And and, and the solutions are crude but clever as, you know, people catch a knife in motion either in their mouth or in their hands. But they're, Yes, there's a lot of that. They're motioning with it already in their hand and so forth. So they're using whip hands to their advantage, you know what I mean? But I think it's neat and it's also a martial world that isn't Shaw Brothers in style, meaning it's not eye-popping and colorful. It's, uh, no. it's, it's wuxia on a budget and... Um, I somehow like the look of this. It's a little bit more gritty. It's a little bit more earthy, I suppose. Um, it it doesn't look uh, glossy and supernatural all the time. And uh, right, well, a lot, there's a lot of location in it. Which, being a Taiwanese film, it's like you know, sort of anonymous fields and rock quarries and whatnot. But it's it's well done. I also found a lot of the characters pretty like likable. Because of the fact you could really root for, you know, clear-cut good guys and bad guys. I really liked uh, Wu Ming-Sha as Lady T. I liked um, uh, Yi Yun as Li Pei. I liked the heroes. They were all very likable. Even uh, I uh, ramble, but I, I did I, enjoy I mean, they, the they, they are distinctive, I agree. I mean, you can recognize them and their, their respective plight, despite this not attempting drama as such. But you're right, I... Lei Peng, uh, he 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 argues his case for not being uh, the villain of this piece and not that evil. And the actor looks sort of regal and present, and uh, you 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 would buy his sincerity. Yes, and, uh, he's very authoritative. Yeah. Also, by the way, on 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 wire shots and such, this movie doesn't have a lot of that. There's a lot of leaps 
where, where they just bend their knees in frame and then you cut right. to reveal that they've jumped over there. But this yes. is what you did in 1971. You didn't have a, a ton of traveling wire shots, you know what I mean? But uh, that's not to its disadvantage or anything because they, they execute that with pace and energy and belief in what they are able to do and how and in a belief in terms of they know how how much the techniques have evolved. So they correspond yes. to where the cinema is at the time. And over the course of the 70s, wire work would be a lot more complex, of course. Uh, so um, I, I really enjoy that um, you know, you you don't look down on this movie despite knowing that everything is better nowadays, and that's the magic of this movie in a way. I think. No, yeah, you don't condescend to it because it is doing absolutely the best and the most with its means that it can. I mean, to, not to give out my opinion of Dynasty right uh, right away, but that that's a Latin movie that that doesn't do as good of a job making the small budget its friend. I thought that might be why you combine those two, because Dynasty does not benefit from comparison to Fearless Fighters. It gets a little murkier. And, and they also neatly plant the, the notion of someone possessing the lightning whip, which is a whip. It's not a uh, an animated sort of cartoon whip or anything like you would have... 15 years later, but within the context of this universe and in this structure as uh, Richard Elman and Dick Brummer uh, constructed it, I found it to be sort of, I liked it, it's neat, it's neat, this universe has the lightning whip and I like that item and I guess I, I guess I become, became happy because of the fact that they also put it to good use even if it's just a whip. They, they put right. weapons to good use even though they have to... Uh, do physical solutions rather than spe- special effects uh, illusions in post and that's a difficult thing to do to get you to buy into something that doesn't seem like it has a lot of means to convey what it what it wants in that grand way yeah but he's the lightning he's not just the whip he's the lightning whip yeah i mean the trailer for this i'm sure you're gonna be playing snippets of it the trailer for this movie puts me in a good mood it's kind of like uh like i said about inframan inframan is like a movie where they made the trailer first and then they made sure the movie lived up to the trailer in every way there's so much visual joy in that film you know the monsters are going ah yeah and it, and it fonses on you know same thing on the web the thunderbolt fists let's uh, talk uh, shortly about where the director is in this movie director Wu Min Chung he is a character in the fir- first third of the movie he um He's the character that flees from uh, from the house with the kid on his back, you know, try, trying uh. to protect the family. And he has a sort of uh, Chang Chie style uh, fight to the uh, fight to the death, despite despite being fatally wounded. Uh, right, like he yeah, he kills off like twenty more people despite being fatally wounded and slashed. And and he does some nifty acrobatics off a table and things like that. So and he also was the action director or one of the action directors so that's uh, director Wu Min showing in a in a distinctive little um, cameo as a very heroic uh, character uh, trying to make some someone out of that family uh, come out alive after the massacre and all of that so I wanted to give him a little shout out because it's a, it is his his movie and he got to shine uh, a little bit in terms of um, in terms of the action and all of that. So it's not all flying. It's not all uh, special effects in terms of fighting. It has some grounded 
choreography as well. And yes. for early 70s, I thought it was ni- at points nicely fluid in terms of swordplay. Topa, for instance, dispatches people one by one with swords, but, but he uses boxing as well. You know, he, he uses some hand-to-hand stuff. So I, I, I don't know if uh, what you like more, the exaggerated stuff or the grounded stuff more, but I always like when you have a mixture of both because... Uh, I like a mixture of both. I like and I like hand fighting if it's really I don't know, I want to say authentic, but if it's really visceral, you know, if you feel the blows. And I felt there was this there's that and then the fanciful kind of wuxia, you know, the airier kind of stuff. And and and, and only occasionally the under crank a little uh, a little bit on the less successful side, but um it was funny watching the one of the female performers in an earlier scene. She, her undercranked scene didn't look very well. It looked too rehearsed. But in a latter scene, it really looked like it flew. Uh, it was fluid and it was uh, powerful. And she had a nice sense of fury. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that in, in a production that might not have had the time to get everything right. Uh, right. Like yeah. one or two fight scenes look a bit sluggish or undercranked in a comical sure. fashion. But uh, I, you know, when it does so many things correctly, then, then there's no reason to complain, really. Were, were you expecting, by the way, the, the, uh, by the way, the Lady T character to be perceived as a boy initially? Because she has that look uh, where... But she wasn't, was she? She's probably in the original version she was, but... Maybe so. I, I was just, uh, that was what I was asking you. If you n- knew that, oh, here we go, genre trope, everyone is going to think she's a boy. Well, actually, what I'll say is she reminded me a lot of Pearl Chang Ling. Uh, I think there was one particular movie in which, in which Pearl Chang Ling wore a white costume like that with a huge hat. And I can't, it might be Wolf Devil Woman, actually. Yeah, it's a little bit um, like also a response to Polly Kwan or Cheng Pei Pei, but uh, sure. it, it's not this um, ill-fitting copy. This movie doesn't riff in this desperate way on no. other genre classics, which is uh, really in its favor as well. Uh, what else? Uh, we talked of some techniques like mid-air slicing. Obviously, they are not yes. s- flying shots. The, the 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 camera is high. The the actors are low, and they do slicing mid-air. But that's what you did in 1971, and I love that. They, that's right. that that's not the poor man's solution. That that's the solution of the times. And when you cut and you edit in a dynamic fashion, which I forgot to say. This really is edited in a dynamic fashion, whether they sped up it in America or had it, or, or if it was tightly edited in terms of action originally. You really don't get a sense of this being clunky. Even, you know, the cutaways to puppets flying. You know, there's a scene where people, where two people, uh, they fly across a lake. And clearly those are puppets on a wire. Yeah, It's there for two, three seconds for you to go, whoa. They're like projectile arrows or bullets, but it's not on screen to the extent where you where you think like, look at those limb puppets. It's it's kind of cool because they go whoosh, like a straight arrow. Effects like that, if you have the audience's goodwill, they're fine. As long as you have the audience on your side, they're gonna they're gonna go with it and go, okay, yeah, I get that. And and still, it I it's it's nice to think that this was such a new sight 
for American audiences. Uh, you know, maybe people saw like King Boxer. I mean, fantastic. Where did this come from? And then somehow someone brings uh, brings in this other layer of the kung fu wuxia genre. As I recall, King Boxer was, or Five Fingers of Death, I should say, was really marketed for its violence. You know, it was, and it's it is kind of a grim film. And I think the part where he rips the guy's heart out of his chest was sort of the, you know, that was the moment that sealed Five Fingers of Death's victory. But it's a, definitely a very different mood. This doesn't go for that grimness, as you said. It's not particularly bloody as such. Uh, no. I mean, it, it goes for spectacle. And, and but by the time we introduce the uh, Craigslist um, attendees, as <laughs> as, uh, yeah, I, I thought to myself, the movie is not running out of ideas, and isn't this lovely? That it has varied its action, it has provided coherent plot and characters, and now they introduce this. You know, what's your spontaneous thoughts on on the whole meeting and demonstration scene, or scenes of, uh, or, or maybe uh, Robert, it's uh, an, an audition scene, uh, one should say. Uh, so, what's your general thought on the spectacle at hand there? That was very. I, I agree. That was very well done. It was like kind of like, wow, what are they going to come up with next? And then they fi- finished with the the blackface vampires. Which actually did, and they did come into play at the end, too. It, it's kind of lovely because they don't have solar rays coming out of the solar ray weapons. They shake them about right. the place a little bit, and a little detonation on the set does its thing. Right. And I'm fine with that because I thought that was... It, it's there. It's present. It's not like it, you, we have a middle element missing. And I thought that was a perfectly fine solution. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't like limp uh, school theater or anything. Right. If made a few years later, this film definitely would have had a lot more, you know, drawn on film, lightning bolts coming out of people's eyes and fists all over the place. And I think it's nice not to have that for once. And the, and the weapons design are kind of cool, like these crescent moon knives and the solar rays are look heavy enough i suppose uh, they're not like gold gold cardboard necessarily um and i'm i think i'm getting this confused with dynasty because was dynasty the one where they had these like um they're they weren't flying guillotines but they're like these flying claws that would snap people's heads off that yeah, was dynasty that that's its sort of 3d signature moment right uh, a dynasty. yes uh, but it could have been this one because it's uh, it would have fit, I suppose. Uh, this wasn't uh, this wasn't 3D. I don't remember the commentary now, but I have a slight suspicion where, where they talk about when they introduce the vampire phantoms, which appear as ghosts, essentially. Yeah. They might have alluded to the fact that they were ghosts originally, and oh. they they instead sort of re- redid it for them to um, actually be part of the Craigslist uh, Craigslist gang. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? I like that too. I'm proud of that. Yep, yep. I'm, uh, I'm uh, not gonna be able to use it myself anymore because I, I'd be uh, I'd be uh, riffing on your idea. Um, the the very final note, I suppose. Uh, we even go through a very quick, and I mean very quick. Uh, a main character dies. It shows up as having survived a fall from a mountain, disabled. He now has. Uh, uh, detachable has, hands, like, tear, tear away uh, limbs. It's sort of pre-crippled Avengers. If you ever saw crippled yes. Avengers, um, 
And that's the only part, uh, Todd, that I thought was uh, w- where they m- probably took out a little bit too much because there's no explanation yeah. how that character survived the fall from a mountain. That's true. But that's also kind of the, the icing on the cake because they don't even reveal that. It starts out as a normal fight, but aha, you know, and his leg tears away and he's got a big spike, you know. So it's that they kind of up the ante there, but it could have been. I kind of like the fact it wasn't explained because at that point, like, oh, okay, all right, whatever. Sometimes you want movies to move that fast, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, we were 10 minutes out and uh, that character dies, comes back, and then gets to demonstrate his uh, pr- new projectile hands and feet, I suppose. <laughs> and it's sort of. It's yeah, a he's case like a of, transformer. Very much so, but uh, <laughs> way, 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 way shorter. Than a Transformer movie, that's true. Right. So, so yeah, um, it, it's great. I mean, uh, we, we get the you know the, the Devil Ripper and the lightning lightning whip being physical elements towards the end, rather than being philos- uh, like a phys- uh, philosophical fancy name for an animated power. Right. It's literally what it is. Because if you think of all those Shaw Brothers movies, they so sometimes they introduce characters with descriptions and weapons with descriptions right and, and sometimes the sort of physical manifestation seems uh, disconnected from from that but here what they say is what you get <laughs> you know so uh so yeah it clicks and connects and uh, it clinches the whole cool and unique flavor and um i you know if i ever get to see a real man I- i'm sure it would play very well but i, I still think, think there's something special about um, the state that it is in right now I mean, I think there are rare instances where a where a international version is better than the original, and when that is the case, is because they've shored up. You know, they've done some much needed editing. I mean, I think another movie like this is um, Dario Argento's Deep Red, which in the no one ever says that. I'm glad that you said that. I hate the long version. It's because not- of all, yeah, all the stuff with him and Daria Nicolodi, you know, that's supposed to be cute, sort of romantic comedy stuff. It just kills the mood. It kills the pacing. And they chopped all of that out of the American version. Thank it's God. much superior. Yeah. It's called, which is called The Hatchet Murders, I think. Oh, yeah. And, and Suspiria 2 in Japan. I have the Japanese laser disc of Deep Red. So it's Suspiria uh, 2. Oh, I see. Hmm. So, so, so it's sort of a home video reversal there. So, um, uh, but they also did the long version on LaserDisc in um, in Japan. In Japan, but then it was Italian only, so you couldn't really see it until you got some subtitles later on uh, in the home video life. But uh, that was the only reason I got one of those limited editions because they were going to put that short version of Deep Red in the limited edition only. So I was like, that's the only version I like. I gotta, I gotta get it immediately. <laughs> Because uh, I, I live with the Italian version, but I don't like it as much. I, 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 so, so yeah. Because uh, uh, whenever you bring up Deep Red, people say, oh, my God, I love the two-hour version. Yeah, because you have to. You have to I, say that. Because you're supposed to be a purist. But it's not pure. Sometimes the the director's vision is not pure because he has too many. He's too close to it, you know. I mean, sometimes you uh, you play to your market, so so, sure. you, so so you include everything. But in, in that case, it meant a two-hour movie versus like a hundred or ninety-minute movie internationally. So it's not like five minutes made a difference. It was like 
a big old chunk. So um, yeah, and and in the case of a real man, I'm willing to bet uh, ten fifteen minutes were excised. Uh, it's, yeah, it's probably um, probably true because uh, these movies weren't really one hundred minute movies, especially not low budget ones. So very cool. Well, uh, I'm out of notes, so in, unless you have anything else, uh, let's talk availability. So, do you have anything else you want to share about the weapons and such? Oh, the weapon. No, <laughs> the only thing I'll share about this movie is that I recommend it without qualification. It's it's one of my favorite martial arts movies, and I think, you know, I'm sure it, it, it's capable of not being enjoyed, but it's hard for me to imagine anyone with an interest in fun action cinema not really, really being jazzed by this movie. Yeah, I hope uh, anyone who's maybe only used to the frenzy of... Uh... 70s and 80s wuxia can go back to this and see that this is in its own way very frenzied as well especially in this version yes absolutely uh, so 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 as for availability the us dvd by image uh, that contains this english version by richard elman's company it's available in widescreen of a disc along with an audio commentary by him and dick brummer and that is still available and uh, those prices weren't uh, hugely um hugely uh, increased just because it's an old dvd so you can get it uh, you can also stream it on amazon prime video in the u.s it's flagged as high definition and while elman did say that the dvd restoration was also prepared in high definition to play on television the stream looks identical to dvd so but so so it's not uh, this uh, neatly sort of increased uh, resolution version uh, so um but uh, since you can get it for free, try it out and then try and get the DVD if you liked it. Uh, you can also buy it on Prime Prime Video, I think. Yeah, but uh, I would recommend get, getting the DVD because you, you, you get that insight that we uh, summarized. Yeah, here, I so. wish I had had that, the uh, commentary. But because they don't uh, talk to the screen that often. Uh, so you, you can listen to it like a podcast, uh, essentially. So. Uh, cool. Well, uh, we'll take a short break, and after that, we'll talk Dynasty from 1977 in 3D, in stereophonic, supersonic uh, 3D, or whatever they named the system that it's uh, that, that it's uh, utilizing. Smellovision. Smellovision, indeed. And and sense around, by the way, it actually was released in sense around. Uh, and and those techniques sounded way more cooler back then. Sense around a track stereophonic sound system. Uh, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, its 3D process and what, what the movie's like after the break. And welcome back. And for the second half, we are going to review Dynasty in 3D from 1977. And the plot goes as follows. And we hand over to Todd, who's got a handle on this thing called writing. In, uh, both, in, <laughs> both in terms of books, but in, also in terms of uh, summarizing uh, the plot up to a point. So what is Dynasty about? 
During the Ming Dynasty, Prince Chu, played by Xinyang Chang, is driven from his palace by the invading forces of the evil eunuch Chao, played by Pai Ying. He and his loyalists take refuge in a Buddhist temple, where he meets Tan Sao Xin, played by Dorian Chan, a loyalist warrior who offers to help the prince in his battle against Chao. Not long after, Chao and his men find the temple and massacre everyone inside, except for the prince, who has taken his own life. Tan finds a note left for him by the prince, telling him he has one week to find and kill Chao before Chao becomes immortal. Tan sets off in search of Chao, battling along the way with the interference of Chao's men, in particular his right-hand man, General Chu, played by David Tang Wei who has been ordered to stop him. General Chu, however, is secretly plotting to end Chao's cruel reign and beseeches Tan to join him in his cause. Tan refuses, but Chu, throughout their ensuing battles, repeats his attempts to recruit Tan, sparing his life again and again. At the same time, he reassures Chu that he is merely trying to bring Chan over to their side. Finally, when Chao exposes Chu as a traitor, Tan and Chu must join forces against Chao in a battle to the death, both of them hoping to exploit a brain injury that Chao has received in an earlier fight. Mm-hmm. Packed wuxia stuff, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to if it's um, incoherent or not, I suppose. As we mentioned, it was shot in 3D, and uh, we we put together some minor info on uh, what kind of 3D it uh, was shot in, and what kind of examples exist in 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 Asia, Hong Kong, China, and whatnot. So, uh, Todd, uh, why don't you t- tell us a little about um, the the little we know of Dynasty and its 3D 3D conception? We're a little spare on details, but this film is said to be the first Taiwanese production to be both shot and. 3D, and also utilize the sense-around 8-track stereophonic system as used in Hollywood movies such as 1974's Earthquake, Midway, and Roller Coaster, and was designed to be immersive via the use of of extended range bass for sound effects. As the wiki describes, the low-frequently sounds were more felt than heard providing a vivid compliment to on-screen depictions of earth tremors, bomber formations, and amusement park rides, and sword slashes and flying guillotines, I suppose. Yeah, they, they had to uh, they had to come up with some kind of low low range uh, sound for their own <laughs> local local production. Whether this sounded any good or not, I can't tell. <laughs> so. Well, that's a risky proposition because as a bass player, I know there's in bass player lore, there's something called the brown note, which is a frequency so low that it causes you to defecate in your pants. As for 3D and martial arts across Hong Kong, China, and Taiwan at the time, because it's more common now we're focusing on this era, we of course had the Jackie Chan movie Magnificent Bodyguard from 1978 one of his movies during the low-way days before his breakthrough. Taiwan also puts the hopping vampires front and center and coming to coming at ya in 1989's The 3D Army. Was that really in 3D? They did 3D stuff. They dangled stuff in front of us. And um, so there's really no reason to call it 3D Army and dangle stuff in front of us in 2D as design. 
that's the movie that has a poster with some coming at your stuff but also in the background there's the uh, the face hovering around the house from the fright night poster they've inserted that which is like the the female lead uh, in fright night i'm blanking on her name uh, and how she looks as a vampire uh, but so they, they literally put put that in the uh, 3D Army background, uh, uh, in the background of their poster. I wanted to add that I saw the movie Roller Coaster in the theater when it came out, but not because it had sense around, but because the band Sparks appeared in it. They're performing at the park when one of the really terrible roller coaster accidents happened but 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 was it uh, showing in that uh, technical specification even though you might not have cared of it, cared for it i believe it was yeah really uh sensor was a big thing for maybe a few months i remember they put out a soundtrack album for earthquake and the and the a side was the music but the b side was all the sensor around thing effect oh, that's rather neat so you could put it on your your stereo and turn up the bass and it would shake all the glassware and stuff good fun in the 70s of course you'd have to get stoned first before doing that. well that that's no problem <laughs> I, <laughs> I have vinyl and that uh, at the ready and uh, i can just Whoa. log on to discogs and uh, i can yeah. complete the trifecta if you want there you go well todd mentioned that uh, the lead actor is dorian tan and we might we might as well mention a few things about him uh, dorian tan or tan tao liang also known and possibly credited as flashlegs on a variety of movies so uh, uh, he was born in South Korea in 1947, but his parents fled to mainland China after the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out. He started studying martial arts as early as seven, and uh, in a variety of styles, including judo, hapkido, but he personally liked taekwondo better, as it, in his words, allowed for full contact, sparring, and uh, competition. Uh, he was fond of the high kicks in, uh, in competition, uh, as that would generate... Uh, two points so he was competitive uh, clearly he um, he uh, sort of uh, latched onto that and he won several championships as well as a world title during his uh, performing uh, life at the uh, on the circuit and all of that in his 20s he started teaching taekwondo at the national taiwan university and one student included john liu who would go who would go on to become a popular kicker in uh, kung fu films including the mars villa uh, Tan himself was spotted by filmmakers in 1973 and made his debut in the film The Hero of Chu Chow and spent the 70s and 80s appearing in over 40 films, including in John Woo's Hand of Death, that also includes Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan. Uh, he's also in The Hot, The Cool and The Vicious for director Lee Cho Nam. He's uh, briefly in the Shaolin Invincibles, the one with the gorillas. Yay! And, and it's not really... A cameo that blows you away because the fun stuff has already happened and already already reigns supreme in the Shaolin Invincible. So how can a an actor walking on? Hello, I'm the kicker. We've had gorillas. Sit down. <laughs> you, you, can't, you, you can't sort of outmaneuver the fact that yeah. we had gorillas in the movie. So yeah. Oh well. You just have to clean up after the gorillas. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's your uh, that's your ticket in life. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dorian's uh, last credit uh, in movies is the war actioner Lost Breath, uh, which was also known as Jungle Heat. Uh, it was a different edit. Which hopefully did not have any gorillas in it. Well, maybe it, it didn't. Uh, what it did have, even though it doesn't connect to gorillas, uh, was a, it had an alternate edit 
that that was jungle heat and it had specific scenes for that edit that edit that starred sam jones of flash gordon fame he trains oh. the chinese uh, soldiers but he doesn't appear in the chinese version of the film so they they complete they completed a little thing to sell internationally on the name uh-huh. uh, sam jones uh, even though flash gordon was a couple of years old by yeah. that point uh, and i and i don't know really if, if flash gordon caught so, sort of the audience uh, if it caught uh, the audience taste in a positive way in the 80s i have a feeling it's a movie that built up an audience over time and so that's why yeah. sam jones could be tapped for for, for movies like ted because uh, people kind of like right. uh, like Sam That's Jones. Right. Uh, he was in Flash Gordon, uh-huh. but, but I don't know if he was uh, uber famous uh, off the Flash Gordon necessarily. Don't look at me. Well, you're uh, you're sort of a cult specialist, so I am looking at you. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I love Flash Gordon, but I don't know. I mean, it's got a pretty good cult following these days. I think you know if you have Max von Sydow and a Queen soundtrack, then I think you're good to go for a little bit of cult Hell appeal. Yes. Yeah. And so Last Breath for Jungle Heat was uh, Dorian Tan's uh, last uh, movie. And he retired from acting at that point uh, in the mid-80s and uh, relocated to Monterey Park, California, where he opened a kung fu school in 1987. Uh, He eventually went back to Taiwan and uh, also in in the early 90s, he was the executive producer and had story credit under the name Delon Tanners, which is a terrible name. Why not keep Dorian Tan? <laughs> uh, and that was on the mo- on the American martial arts movie Breathing Fire from 1991, which reportedly is a remake of his own 1977 kung fu vehicle, The Flashlegs. And it also had appearances from Jerry Trimble and Bolo Young, because uh, Bolo worked internationally, so uh, you could probably get the Bolo uh, pretty easily in that regard. Uh, one of the last nuggets of info on Dorian um, was that he was arrested in Taiwan in 2006 for beating up five uh, people out of the staff at a restaurant. <laughs> Why he did, if it was warranted or not, uh, if he was drunk and like, I'm flash legs, motherfucker. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just hope someone filmed it. Yeah, uh, uh, it's not surfaced yet. Which, uh, But uh, maybe he kicked the shit out of them and they show that he still got it at that point in his life so yeah uh, he, at the end he went, he stood atop a pile of their bodies went yeah he, he, because it sounds like he's the kind of character that, that never stops uh training yeah you know, if you start early that then you stop uh, at the end of your life uh, essentially right, so. exactly monterey park is maybe an hour from where i live mm-hmm. it's too bad he closed i could go check him out not that i would but you know put your face against the window <laughs> Are you Flash Legs? <laughs> and then there's a new news item, like uh, Flash Legs beats up uh, Curious Fan in Monterey <laughs> Park. And it yeah. was filmed. This time. Not right, exactly. <laughs> Probably by me. <laughs> and I got beat up by the guy in Shaolin Invincibles. So, <laughs> so as for Dynasty, then, uh, and some quick opinion, first of all, it's fun to know of. It's fun to know of that a Kung Fu slash Wuxia movie was shot in 3D. It's sort of my kind of trivia. And partly it's kind of cute that they decided to add this technical spectacle to the Kung Fu movie. You know, it, it has a fair amount of coming at, coming at you trickery. Things being poked into the camera. Exactly. Like, don't don't poke out the lens. Those things are, are expensive. <laughs> but but as a film, though, it struggles to get the momentum going. I mean, it has variety in the, in the settings and the choreography. It's a simple enough story. But a lot of the choreography is oddly slow and sluggish. And it's 1977. 
And I was really surprised by that. So it hurts momentum and it's not as fun as uh, I'll... I was hoping it uh, would be. It uh, it doesn't leave a lasting impression, but I can't be mad at it, Todd, because it is a 3D kung fu movie, and that's fun to have experienced. Well, also we have to, you know, we're pairing it with Fearless Fighters, so it's kind of hard to evaluate it in terms of fun when put up next to one of the most fun kung fu movies ever made. But but uh, what's your opinion, in short, first of all, of uh, Dynasty? I'm at that sad age where I rate films by how well I remember them, which (laughs) is not always fair because it's been a while since I first watched this one and I had completely forgotten it. I had written a synopsis that I had to rewrite because I just rewatched it this morning and there was a lot more to it than, you know, it's it's a little more complex than I had originally thought. I thought it was just sort of a... A cookie cutter martial arts revenge movie, clan versus clan sort of thing. But the relationship between Tan, the character you know played by Dorian Tan, and Chow played by Pai Ying, is pretty central to the story. Where his on Tu's ongoing attempts to get Chow over to his side, or to, to get Tan. I'm sorry, their names all begin with T. Uh, to get Tan over to his side, and Tan resists. And, I mean, that is kind of a really common trope, but being from California, and I just want everybody to get along, I love <laughs> movies where the two, you know, the good guy and the bad guy finally join forces against a greater enemy, or at least someone else that they both want to kill at the end. Yeah. So I like that aspect of it, and I think it made it a little more complex. It was okay. I agree that this, I guess the fights could have been more furious, but they were well choreographed, and there was a lot of them. I mean, you never have five minutes go by without there being a fight. It, it has variety in its favor, very much so. I agree. Yeah, so quantity, if not quality. So I like this. Not as much as Fearless Fighters. I love Fearless Fighters. As I said, it's one of my favorite Kung Fu movies. Maybe if I'd seen it in 3D, I might, you know, have a better opinion. Like, that was cool when that guy stuck that weird piece of fabric towards the camera. It was all weak. I've seen worse and more desperate attempts at 3D. I remember Amityville 3D, where someone stretches into the foreground and grabs a thing. <laughs> I got it now, like a gloss. Or something. Like, <laughs> God, yeah. What are you doing? Like, make a horror movie, like My Bloody Valentine, the, the first one. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that was like proper po- poking at you. Like, do it yeah. like that, not stretched. Oh, nearly got it. Oh, I got it now. <laughs> <laughs> There's an Indian movie from the, I think, early 80s that was their first E3D movie. And I'm trying, it was like a sort of a superhero movie. And one of the things they did with that in that I'd never seen in a 3D movie, which is interesting because most 3D movies, they threaten the audience. They have like guns and swords and projectiles, you know, flying out of the screen. But this one, like, someone would hold like a bowl of candy up to the camera or there's one point where a guy is cash counting a wad of bills right into the camera and it looks like he's like sort of making it rain and i thought it was interesting to use it to tempt rather than threaten the audience and i could see little kids you know in the audience in india like you know grasping at the screen for the candy it was an interesting take on it 
as a movie though it starts with a lot of riding and it isn't a snappy like fearless fighters is like richard elman of uh of, of fearless fighters the one who edited it together with his partner they would have made mincemeat out of this opening and someone really should have because it uh, well maybe it looked good in 3d Maybe so, and, and, and they really start the, the 3D stuff, like the drumstick for the gong is coming at us. I mean, I, I see what you're doing. And also, I, I, I did find the fact that they use, there are different shot choices here, because uh, to elevate the, the Kung Fu movie that's also connected to 3D, you have to do stuff you haven't done before, really, in a Kung Fu movie, even though it looks crude, but shooting arrows at us, it's making me hopeful. It's not like greatly executed, but they actually do try and do cool shots rather than random yeah. waving at you stuff, which would have made it tiring because the bad choice would have been the Kung Fu action is as you've always seen it and they only do some g- g- like drumsticks coming at us slowly. So at least they, they, they make it a spectacle. It was like a log hanging where the, one of those things where they swing it. Um, which I like that. Yeah, overall, I mean, it's not a must-see, but I'd say if you have to see it, it passes the time well. I mean, did you find those uh, shot choices within action to be fun? Because uh, it uh, it's not the usual shots in a kung fu movie, and that's because it was done in 3D. I mean, I could always tell, oh, that's because this is a 3D movie. I don't know if they made the movie... I guess I made the movie a little more interesting because it was like a game you could play, like pick out the 3D gimmickry. Like they throw rocks at the camera and uh, obviously obviously foam rocks. But, uh, you know, I found that neat that uh, they are thinking of uh, different ways to design the movie. Uh, and, and, and they do that early, so we, we, we get like a taste of what they're capable of, which is... Maybe in the 70s it was okay. It's a little bit crude here, but still I appreciated the ideas of how to um, to spice this up. Yeah, I did too. And uh, some of the fights are good just because of the stakes, I guess. Like the final fight is exciting because of the drama, you know, of it. And these two guys are finally, after the whole movie, joining up to kill this bad guy um, who has, who has a, a brain injury, as it so turns out. That is, by the way, uh, Pai Ying, as you said. Pai Ying played the eunuch in Dragon Inn. That's one of his more, most famous oh. uh, roles. But uh, he's obviously been uh, active throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So, um, Was he typecast as a eunuch then? I don't remember a plethora of uh, roles. Uh, his face was pretty you know, suited for villainous roles. He's oh, yeah. In, I believe he's in the Michelle Yeoh movie Royal Warriors, which is a modern action movie, and that suits him quite well because it's a ferocious movie in part, and um, he can sell that bad guy aura quite well. Right, I knew I'd seen his face before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because he wasn't, like, covered in tons of white makeup in Dragon Inn, um, so, uh, like, unit characters sometimes were, to to a point where you don't recognize the actor sometimes immediately. Uh, Um... I like Dorian Tan's introduction. Of course, they continue that 3D momentum by having him throw uh, coins at us, but also to to celebrate his kicking skills. He kicks pottery and things like that. So they're doing things right, but but I think... Uh, and it, he it, throws someone off a balcony, doesn't he? Oh, that's in the fight that ensues. There's much to be appreciated, even though it, it, it is crude, uh, but um, they, they're doing things conceptually correct. Uh, I, I think it is that aspect of... Um, 
of the choreography that it is too slow and sluggish to a point where uh, I, I wanted the movie to implode a little bit more, have a little bit more ferociousness, have a little bit more speed yeah. because it is 1977 and it should have right. been a little bit better. The choreographer, Han Ying Chie, worked for uh, King Hu and there his work is is great because he's also in, in, in a good filmmaker's hands. But uh, he also played the big boss in the Bruce Lee movie, The Big Boss. Uh, so he... He could be an on-screen performer, he could be a good choreographer, but mainly it was for King Who, because King Who created a visual aesthetic that uh, was uh, in, you know, unique and better than most uh, wuxia movies, or better than most kung fu movies anyway. So that's, um, you know, it's a little bit a shame that it isn't uh, a bit more ferocious, because I like the variety a lot, even though actors are asked to slowly poke swords at us it's almost like it's almost clunky because the actors haven't done this before and they, they don't want to poke someone's eyes out to damage their camera equipment so so do you do you think that the slowness of the choreography might have something to do with it being 3d that they wanted the movements to be really telegraphed maybe so i don't know the technique too much technically but who knows if maybe in order to register a bit more clearly being a new technique for Taiwan maybe they had to slow the frame rate down a little bit to to have people to have them appreciate the depth even if it's a one-on-one fighting thing maybe so I noticed on YouTube that there is a version of it that's like the superimposed blue over red so if he had some of those old cheap or you can make your own 3D glasses with the red and blue cellophane like they used to be. You might be able to get some of the, the 3D effect. I've never enjoyed that 3D effect in general. Uh, especially, uh-huh. I've watched a few things at home. I remember when the Nightmare on Elm Street box set was put out. They included 3D glasses for the finale of uh, The Final Nightmare. Because, oh, nice. Uh, and it was like, yeah, I guess. But the only time I really enjoyed 3D at home, did this type of 3D, again, was my bloody Valentine because they had things poking at you and shit, and that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I've never been a big fan. I mean, now that they release everything in 3D, it's hard to find a 2 I always try and find a 2D screening on opening night, which is really hard, but I just, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it, Kenneth. <laughs> well, well, well I, I don't go to see 3D movies anyway, but I'm finding watching the, the 2D versions at home that people like Choi Hax is pretty good at using it. His Detective D movies are pretty fun and creative. Yeah. Um, the first one wasn't 3D, I think, but 2 and 3 definitely was, because uh, there's no mistaking. Uh, so I, I sort of trust Choi Hax in terms of today's Kung Fu or Wuxia uh-huh. to deliver a spectacle because he he's still he's imaginative and 3D has allowed that those two things to merge pretty well actually uh, even that the take a movie the taking of Tiger Mountain which is uh, an action war movie has 3D in it and it, it stands out in a bad way almost but it is fairly creative despite so um, to talk a little bit about the, the story if you will because you you connected you, you connected more to the to the dramatic core of the story, at least during this rewatch. So, is it um, is it you know greater than most kung fu movies in terms of story, or is it still basic? No, it just it it makes it. I mean, I don't know if I connected to it, but it was um, it made it it made it less generic than it otherwise might have been. 
if not for that, might have been checking all the boxes. But it gave it a little bit of, you know, drama that it didn't have. And that gave it a little bit of narrative spice, if you will, that made it more interesting. And I thought the actors were very good, too. He's very good, actually, David Tang. as Yeah, he's very good, yeah. He's also a performer, by the way, that moves very swiftly and with grace. So actually, he's part of the choreography, like when he defends the eunuch earlier in the movie, before he's mm-hmm. changed allegiances or sides. Yeah. L- looked really good on him. And um, so, so, I, so I appreciated they tried to make a full circle story-wise and didn't just throw twists on upon twists on us and freedom. And he has a very noble bearing, so it kind of made sense that he would be conflicted about working for... Eunuch, the eunuch. Um, and, and and again, it continues on. It's not too long, and it continues to vary up its settings. Even though a lot is outdoors, it still felt varied. Like the Dorian is, uh, uh, well, well, prior he has a, a neat sequence where he's um, he's killing off gods uh, by being undetected. You know, uh, which is uh, right. like an atmospheric sort of. He's an unseen force in the palace neat sequence and that doesn't require like a lot of kung fu kung fu kung fu but rather mystery and tension i also forgot to mention his signature weapon is an umbrella it's like this metal umbrella that he can spin it to deflect blows or it's you know or he can it's uh, metal and it's sharp so he can use it to harm people too and then at the end in the fight with chow uh, Chow has a weapon that's like a big metal cross. Yeah, a big huge spinning coin boomerang kind of thing. You know, I like that. That was like, there wasn't a lot of goofy Taiwanese fantasy stuff, but that was kind of, that for me, that did the trick. Yeah, they dropped some creative stuff indeed. Um, that, that That's one of the images that stay with me. Probably the signature shot in terms of uh, the usage of 3D is the outdoor sequence with, with Dorian Tan fending off these gods that they, they, they don't have flying guillotines, but they have projectile weapons on right, chains. Right, yank people's heads off. Exactly, and they do clever reversal shots that when played back, looks like these gods are throwing these things at us and they, they stick. They stick to the top of the frame, essentially. And when you play that, uh, and when you play that uh, forwards, it looks like it's coming at you, but it's obviously done uh-huh. in reverse. Those are very, very good. Those look excellent. They, they don't look clunky. It's no wonder that like the 3D clip on YouTube, I've only seen a clip, involves this sequence because that uh-huh. would be the one where you would like to test out if this even yeah. looks good coming at you. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was I I forgot about that sequence. That was pretty cool. Because because sometimes Todd, when all of these movies are shot outdoors, uh, they have some costumes, some some sets. Right. They have a tendency to not stand out, and we only have a handful that I do know. stand out. And and I and I gather when talking to you that you weren't bothered by any budget limitations, despite them you know being outdoors a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, not that it seems particularly lavish. I mean, I think it looks pretty good. I think they did good with what they had. But, yeah, I mean, don't expect globe-spanning spectacle. You know, you'll see some of those same quarries and open fields that you'll see in so many other Taiwanese movies. But at least there are some weird weapons you know, to some exotic weaponry to give things a little extra flavor. 
I mean, that's how you um, keep an audience busy by pu- putting stuff in the foreground, regardless if you do it in 3D or 2D. Me- because you you get tired of it when you see the 10th Drunken Master copy that week and they do yeah. 30 minutes outside a hut in a field. Right. And uh, a lot of it is comedic as well. And that you grow tired of because it's a it's a clunky sort of flat setting. Uh, uh, right. But uh, this one avoids that uh, yeah. uh, fa- fairly neatly, despite me never really feeling the momentum was there, as I explained. But uh, uh, but but you know uh, you uh, you can't really complain when they're trying this much. Of course, uh, they're they're doing their damnedest. And uh, I guess that's what I thought about the drama of the you know the two brother not brothers but you know what i mean it, it showed that the, in writing it they were think you know they were trying they were trying to do something a little more complicated a little more character driven yeah they, their jobs weren't done just by shooting it in 3d they wanted to combine uh, uh, a little bit more appeal uh, rather than the technical spectacle being the only thing there we, we, you know which is good that uh, that's why i probably didn't get on with the likes of magnificent bodyguards because uh, it felt like um, it was more desperate and it wasn't that compelling of a wuxia piece. I mean, I guess in saying those things, I'm sort of giving it an A for effort, which is sort of a backhanded compliment to give a movie. But, you know, that I mean, that's the way it is. It's a, it's an, a slightly above average uh, martial arts film yeah. that I would not feverishly recommend, but I'd be like, yeah, if you want to see it, it's okay. I mean, the, the the novelty of it being done in 3D, even if you see it in 2D, for me, that's something to log in your sort of cinema genre memory bank. That's true. And it's okay to pursue and watch that at least once based on that alone. I mean, I, I don't, uh, it's not a fun movie with loud spectacle that makes me want to sit down with it again to see those five crazy minutes. It's, it's sort of even, <laughs> momentum is, comes and goes, so sometimes it's average, but... It, the images that stand out, they, they're there. They're not forgettable, but it's not enough to recommend it as a genre piece necessarily. Right. I mean, like that Indian movie I mentioned before, whose name I still can't remember, even though I wrote a 4,000-word article about it. Is it in your book, so you can look it up now? <laughs> yes, it will be in my upcoming book. Oh, uh, not I the first one. I don't know when it will Oh, no, it's not, because it was made in the 80s. Right on, right on. So it'll be in my next book, my next film book, The Sophisticates Guide to Global Cinema, which hopefully will come out in this year. We'll see. Look at the man uh, figuring out how to plug before we're even done. So, well done. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate shameless behavior more than you. No, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I wallow in shameless behavior. But, but, but I am really at the tail end of my notes uh, here. So, if you don't have any other specific notes, uh, we can do the... The, the the limited availability we we can talk of I suppose. I do not. I like in your notes you're saying the director made another three D movie called Thirteen Golden Nuns. That sounds great. And you'll be able to see that very soon, actually. Um, so uh, l- let us put that in context. But uh, as for Dynasty, it's circulating mostly in full screen in 2D. But what we saw was a custom version in widescreen from VHS. And I think it was a French VHS that someone put English dubbing on. And the director, indeed, of this uh, movie, uh, uh, let us uh, probably, uh, properly name the director, Chang Mei-chun, 
made a movie called indeed uh, 13 golden nuns aka revenge of the shogun women and that movie is coming to you as blu-ray from kino lorber in 2020 no specific dates but uh, it has been has been announced and hopefully that opens the door for dynasty if a negative of it is available i'd watch it again if i could see it in 3d yeah, very much so. Uh, hopefully they'll include uh, those uh, those glasses um, too or present a 2D, 3D version on disc. But uh, that's uh, rather cool. And I'll, I'll, I'll pick up that 13 Golden Nuns in a, in a heartbeat because it's worth supporting and I haven't seen it. And it'll, it'll be cool to see what they did the same year in uh, with, with that movie because they... I don't know if you have to sort of rent equipment to get this done, so maybe they made sure. To I shoot. think it inv- back then it involved using two cameras and one filming in green. Uh, usually, it's red red tint and one filming in blue tint, and then you put a you project. And, and I'm thinking like maybe they thought to themselves, let let's shoot two movies before we have to send these cameras back to wherever we got them from. Maybe they have to re- rent them from America. Who knows? But, yeah, uh, the Roger Corman approach. Let's film another movie while we're out here in the in the field. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, get uh, get that movie, and uh, fingers crossed, the Dynasty gets uh, gets an upgrade. But um, uh, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but in the meantime, we are done for this episode of Fearless Fighters and Dynasty. And uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including the back catalog of Taiwan War, go to podcastonfire.com. Check out our social media links on our site, whether on the main page or in the show post. And uh, all the relevant show links will be available uh, here in the show post as well, including Todd's pluggy pluggy stuff whether new stuff or old stuff but uh, as you are the honorary co-host and co-producer you get a full plug of whatever you want want to mention your book again well i have no idea when that's going to come out i am working on a new novel which i don't want to say much about but it's not going to be you know i'm leaving the sf punk trio behind and moving on it's still going to be a mystery but i'm going to try the the uh, tightrope act of trying to make it appealing to a wider audience without alienating the people who like my punk books so we'll see how that goes and while you're checking out the old the archived episodes of taiwan noir you could also go to stitcher and check out my i mean if you're a fan of obscure pop songs like i am check out my podcast which is called friday's best pop song ever it's on stitcher they're short. The episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So you can listen to a whole bunch of them on your lunch break or whatever. So anyway, yeah, it's on Stitcher. Friday's the best pop song ever. Boom. And that's really all I've got right now. I'm still doing Pop Offensive on KGPC. That's also archived at kgpc969.org slash pop hyphen offensive. That's uh, we just recorded the 65th episode of. We'll uh, link to all those uh, musical endeavors or the presenting of uh, musical endeavors and th- things like that. Like uh, and 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 recently uh, at the time of recording, you were you were on stage as well, and uh, that's been documented to a degree. So. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, it's been documented. <laughs> no, I mean I feel like we snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> In that case, because I'm sure not everybody knows, but it was meant to be a a reunion show 
of an old band from the 80s of mine called The Naked Into. But it ended up being a reunion of half The Naked Into because our our bass player and our drummer bowed out within two weeks of the show after we'd been rehearsing for a while. And it's fine because we just went ahead and did it. And it's like, you know, bass players and drummers are important, but don't kid yourself that they're integral to the band because we had me the singer we had the guitar player and we had the songs and that's you know that's the songs are what really matters and we were able to put those across good people really enjoyed it blah 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 you know todd i didn't know you could sing that kind of <laughs> stuff anyway so, so but know. i did it but we yeah i'm proud of us because we just went ahead and did it and it was you know, some of it could have been weird because we were doing songs. I did one song completely a cappella. We did one song where he played guitar and I just sang. We did a couple like that. So it was kind of a risky presentation. But I feel we pulled it off. You you didn't do a spinal tap where, where you lost one member and then changed direction altogether. Like, jazz, obviously. <laughs> right. The Naked, naked Into 2.0. Well, I mean, we did, if you, you know, it was a very minimal presentation, so we changed directions in that way. But no, we didn't alter things. We're just like, we're just going to do this. And uh, I think our determination paid off. Excellent. Good to hear. It was fun. Yeah. It was good. Um, right on. We're done for this episode. We'll be back with something, uh, something special, I suppose, from Taiwan. Something you might not have known uh, existed, uh, and that's always well, what we try to do here. But uh, this episode has, is, at any rate, done. And I've been Kedeby, and with me was the multimedia man, Todd Statman. So take us out, buddy. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. See you next time, and uh, that's it. I have nothing more to say to you. So go. Go play outside. Audio ends now. I'm stopping to speak now. <laughs> Don't listen anymore. Five minutes later, you can stop now. <laughs> Are you still listening? <laughs> <laughs>